We're going to take a momentary to Hebrews this morning, and we're going to take a detour to the Gospel of John. If you'd like to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and our primary focus is going to really be 16 through 26, but if you uh, read along with me, we're going to start at the beginning of the chapter, right at verse 1. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but only as disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son uh, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus worried, wearied, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask, be asking him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did his sons and his livestock Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks from this well will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living water up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. You've said what you, what you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed to us who you are and revealed to us truth. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to grasp that truth, to understand And that through it, you would create in us worship. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
So if I were to ask you to define worship, what would you say? How would you define it? If I were to ask you to show me worship, what would you do? What would you do? If someone asked you, how is the worship at North Star Baptist Church? How's the worship there? How would you respond? How would you explain it? How important is worship anyway? Is it all that important? This passage we just read is a familiar one out of the Gospel of John. I'm sure you've heard a sermon from John chapter 4 before. Maybe multiple sermons you've heard preached on this chapter. But perhaps you've missed the most conspicuous part of this chapter, and you'll see it in verses 20 through 24. It's the topic of worship, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Read with me 20 through 24 again, starting at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say in Jerusalem is the place that people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Ten times in five verses, the word worship is referenced in that passage. It shows that worship is a major part of what's being communicated in this entire narrative. It's a focal point. Actually, the entire book of John and even the whole of Scripture. In fact, worship is the point, the importance of time and eternity. It's no small issue. And Jesus makes some very strong, startling declarations in this chapter, in this, in this passage, regarding the topic. Uh, most notably is verse 23. He says, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Father seeking true worshipers. Do you ever find yourself asking, why did God make everything the way he did? Why is everything the way it is? Why did he create the universe and place mankind on the earth? Why, God? Why did he create angels and humans in such a way that they would fall, that they would sin? Why did he allow evil to exist? Why does he allow sinful people and evil events to occur? Why are all these things happening? Why let bad things happen to good people? I put good here in quotation marks because there is nobody who's good other than God. But you understand the dilemma that's summoned in our minds. Why do people commit such evil acts and end up prospering for it? Why do they succeed? And why do those who try to do right end up suffering and even become victims of evil people? Mankind has been asking these kind of questions since the fall. Why? In fact, many of the prophets in the scriptures asked those very similar questions. But the most difficult question for us to answer in the full sense is why did God send the Messiah? Why, God, did you allow all these things to occur that I just described and then have the Son of God take on human flesh 
and suffer so greatly for the sake of those that were so corrupt? And the answer is right here in our passage. God did everything this way because he is seeking true worshipers. He is seeking his glory and he's seeking true worshipers. Amazing statement, isn't it? I mean, if you really think about it, God created everything in this way and he orchestrated all these events in such a way to collect a massive humanity who would be true worshipers of God. And believe me, God has designed the very best possible way to accomplish this task, even though we might not see it that way. But God is not seeking worshipers in a sense that they are intrinsically true worshipers, is he? It's not as if there's a bunch of people running around who are good and true worshipers, and he finds them and says, oh, there you are. I've been looking everywhere for a true worshiper just like you. That's not how God's seeking worshipers. God is seeking worshipers in a sense that he is going after us and making us into true worshipers. God has been seeking true worshipers since the beginning of time, but this has also been his eternal plan. A plan from all of eternity. And the plan is to have its fulfillment in the Son of God who came to seek and save the lost. Jesus did not stumble into an encounter with this Samaritan woman. He didn't trip and fall into this. This wasn't chance or luck that caused him to run into her on that day. Starting in verse 3, it says that Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So Judea's in the south, Galilee's in the north, in between is Samaria. So when the kingdom of Israel was divided after the reign of Solomon, the north was often referred to as Samaria after the capital city in the north. But all the kings in the north were very wicked men, and they led the people into idolatry and wickedness. So They were exiled by God in 722 BC. God used the Assyrians and he exiled them and removed them. Most of the people were taken away. What was left behind was all the poorest and the weakest and the least important people in the populace. Why would you want to take them to your kingdom and use them to serve you? You take the best, the cream of the crop, and what's left, the remnants, you leave them behind. So the Gentile foreigners from other areas, they came and moved in and they, they dwelt with these people, and they inter, intermingled. The leftover Jews mixed with these foreigners. They intermarried with them. They blended also their Judaism with Gentile paganism. The Jews from Judea looked at the Samaritans with tremendous disdain. These people are horrid. These half-breeds were worse than Gentiles since they, as God's covenant people, had forsaken God in the most blasphemous way by mingling with idolatrous Gentiles. Totally unacceptable. If they had to go to Galilee, oftentimes very religious Jews who just would have nothing to do with Samaritans, they would cross over the Jordan, they would go north, they'd go around Samaria, and then they'd come back into Galilee. They'd go way out of their way. To get there, they didn't want to step one foot in Samaria. Not going to happen. Now, our passage says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Why? Why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? This wasn't necessarily true geographically, since they could go around like many of the religious Jews did. 
So why was it necessary to go through? It was necessary to go through Samaria if Jesus were to meet the woman and her townspeople, which I believe was the will of the Father. This was a preordained plan of God. This was the perfect plan. And this passage demonstrates so powerfully the amazing grace of God, his amazing grace. Jesus traveled through Samaria to seek out a woman to speak with her. Unheard of in that day particularly for a rabbi. Religious Jewish men would rarely, if ever, talk to a strange woman for fear that they would somehow defile themselves. They just didn't do that. Even worse still, she was a Samaritan woman. She was a Samaritan woman. Worse yet, she's an immoral Samaritan woman. She was about as low as a person could get in terms of social status and her unworthiness and her sinfulness before God. This was a totally horrible individual. Cannot, how could the Son of God possibly think of going through the land of Samaria in order to talk to an adulterous Samaritan woman? The woman was shocked that he was speaking to her as well. She's totally shocked. Even more shocked at, the, at his request for a drink. So verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? The Jews would never drink from a Samaritan vessel. They would never touch it. Maybe he was even asking to drink from the same vessel she was using. That would have been even worse. This kind of request was absolutely unheard of. On the way, or by the way, This is exactly what the disciples were thinking as well when they came back from their shopping trip. Look at verse 27. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? This behavior was shocking. That Jesus would seek out such an individual that he would speak with her and he would even ask her for a drink. So it just displays how amazing the grace of God is that he seeks out sinners from all corners of the earth, from the lowest places on the earth, to be his worshipers. But that's one of the greatest weaknesses that we all struggle with, that we we compare ourselves with others and assume our sin is somehow more acceptable to God. I'm not as bad as that guy. We judge ourselves against other sinners and determine that God should somehow be pleased with us in comparison to them. How foolish to ever think that our own sin is somehow less offensive to God. We are so unworthy, unworthy. How could any of us ever come near the presence of the most righteous, the most glorious Son of God? But He's come to us. And he has sought us so that we would be his worshipers. And he sought out this Samaritan woman that day. And he was about the work of his father. And the father was seeking true worshipers. But how does one become a true worshiper? How does that happen? We know the answer to that. You must be born again. You must have the new birth. That's, that's the thrust of John's gospel, the entire gospel. You must, be, you must believe. You must be born again. This is exactly what Jesus is trying to get to with this Samaritan woman earlier in the passage. She arrives to get water. And Jesus, being the greatest teacher of truth who ever walked the earth, 
uses water as a connecting point for the gospel. Read along, verse 7. Let's read this part of it again. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for, uh, for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well to drink and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The water said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus says, If you really want, if you really understood, who it is that's speaking to you, you'd be asking him for living water. If you understood who I am. Wow, this, this is way more important than water you draw from a well. So much more important. Why? Why, why was water such a powerful metaphor? Why did Jesus latch on to this? Because the scriptures repeatedly use water and the washing of water as a metaphor for spiritual cleansing, spiritual life, and the power, powerful working of the Holy Spirit to change lives and bring everlasting life. That's why God commanded Israel to go through all the washings in, the multitude, of, in a multitude of scenarios where they had to wash themselves ceremonially. They had to do that before they went into the temple. They had to be, wash themselves They did this constantly, washing dishes, washing this, washing that. It symbolically represented the need for all mankind to be washed from the inside out. You had to be washed. What everything pointed forward to was the new life, the new covenant, the new birth, and to the need for a Redeemer who alone could bring it to the people. New covenant life was declared by God through the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit Within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. God must do a miraculous work in the heart. He must do this, a work that results in the recognition of one's sin, that brings us to repentance and faith and righteousness. The only worshiper that is acceptable and pleasing to God is a worshiper that is unfeigned and is transparent. Before God, offered with a humble and pure heart. He must be made new. God has got to cleanse away the guilt, give us a new heart, and make us into true worshipers. God's got to do this work. 
It's impossible for us. Jesus was everything the Samaritan woman needed, everything that she longed for, and she couldn't see it. It's right in front of her. If you understood who it is that's speaking to you, you would ask of him. Living water would gush, overflow out of your life, but she's not getting it. She's stuck thinking about a hole in the ground and having to draw water out of it all the time. She's thinking about physical water. So Jesus takes and he starts pointing more directly at her need. He says to her, go call your husband and come here. I answer, I, I've got no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one you have is not your husband. You've said true. You've had five husbands and now you're shacking up with a guy. You're right, you've got no husband. He's pointing out her sin. He's pointing out her sin. He openly exposes her guilt. Her greatest need was not water out of the ground. Her greatest need was for cleansing from sin and guilt. Jesus was doing this uh, to this woman exactly what the law does to every one of us, what it's intended to do, convict us of our guilt, that we have defied the character of God, we have blasphemed him, demonstrates our need for cleansing. And the only one who could provide such a cleansing was standing right in front of her, standing right in front of her. And I'm certain Jesus had a commanding spirit as he spoke. People often spoke of, you know, they were struck by the way that he spoke. I'm sure he had a commanding spirit, but now he's demonstrating omniscience by exposing all of her sin. He's a total stranger. He knows everything about her. She's realizing, hey, this isn't just some passing rabbi. This guy has supernatural knowledge. He's got to be a prophet. And I really think at this point, she's really deeply convicted. And it's experiencing the fear of God at this point. She's exposed and feeling her guilt and her need. And that's why she turns her attention to worship and religion here at this point. I really think that's why she changes the conversation. She's feeling the pressure of her sin and this man of God standing her in front of her and recognizes her need before God. But she also is attempting to somewhat deflect the conversation because she turns the conversation towards a controversy in verse 20. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She tries to redirect the conversation by bringing up an argument over proper worship. Are the Jews correct or are the Samaritans correct? Who's worshiping correctly? You see, the, the Jews had the full revelation of God and their worship by prescription and design was correct. They used the temple, had the priestly line, they had the utensils, the instruments, etc., etc., etc. They had all the things that God prescribed, and they were doing it the right way. God had commanded the way in which he was to be worshipped. And they had all of that together, but their hearts were far from God. Far from God. The Samaritans, on the other hand, they worshipped on Mount Gerizim, the mountain that stood right over Jacob's well. And the Samaritans, again, had mixed Judaism with paganism. They even defied God and intermarried with the Gentiles. Additionally, they did not recognize the authority of most of the scriptures. They believed 
that authority only lay in the first five books, the Pentateuch. They had a desire to worship God, but they didn't possess the truth. Jesus said to her in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The Samaritans didn't worship according to truth. What was more is God had chosen this pure line of Abraham to bring Messiah into the world. That was God's design. Salvation is from the Jews. But this controversy over worship locations has no bearing on things in an ultimate sense. There's no impact. These these things don't matter. Why? Verse 21, Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. These places are only shadows. These places are shadows. They're mere representations. But this one standing before you saying, I am he, was the full substance. He's the fullness of God, the Godhead in bodily form. And only through Messiah can one be made a true worshiper of God. The Messiah is here now and will soon bring an end to all these forms of worship, all these places and forms. He'll, he'll, He'll take away the need of these representations through his substitutionary sacrifice. The Messiah is here now and will soon bring an end. The argument is a mute one. Because Jesus is making true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. So what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? There's a lot of people who worship. There's a lot of people who presume to worship. The Samaritan woman here at the well, she viewed herself as a worshiper, didn't she? She also makes reference of her people, the Samaritans, who worship. The Jews were also worshiping. In fact, did you know that every person that has ever lived has been a worshiper? Every one of them. It's true. Every person person that has ever lived is a worshiper. Man is created to be a worshiper. We were created that way. Romans chapter 1, though, describes how mankind withheld the worship of God that was rightly due him and instead chose to worship created things that they could conceive of in their own minds without retaining a knowledge of God. We don't want the God that is. We want the one that we make up. So they created cows to worship, half man, half alligators, bulls, half dog, half man, on and on and on. Archaeologists have been digging up civilizations that go back to earliest mankind, and they found this pantheon of different gods that man's created to worship. These are all false gods, gods of man's own creation. It's just foolishness. Some are worse. Some are false representations of the true God. Like think of the golden calf that the Jews made, said, here, here's your God that brought you out of Egypt. Even today, people create religions, even assuming faith in Christ, but a false Christ, a false representation of who he is, it exists. Everyone worships, though. 
You might say, oh, Paul, but what about atheists? Atheists don't believe in God. They still worship. Guess who they worship? Themselves. In fact, everyone who has ever lived has worshipped themselves other than the person of Christ. Everyone's been a self-worshipper. So you might say, uh, so, uh, so what is true, acceptable worship? What does it look like? First, acceptable worship comes through an essential relationship with God. You've got to have a relationship with God. Jesus says in verse 21, worship the Father. Verse 23, worship the Father. Verse 24, worship Him, referring again to the Father. By the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, guess what? God becomes our true Father to whom we express our greatest praise for our redemption. Who do you imagine is going to offer the greatest worship than those who have been redeemed by God and have been made to be His true children, to enjoy Him forever? Listen to these beautiful words from Isaiah 23, or excuse me, Isaiah 12:3, about the coming of Messiah. It says, "With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation." And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Talk about overflowing being saved from the wells of salvation by the Messiah and you overflow with worship. You delight, you rejoice. It's worship that comes through the new birth. We've been made into worshipers of God through a relationship with him. In John, 1 John 3, 1, we know the verse well. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God? And so we are. We've been united to God in an eternally bound relationship, a paternal relationship where he is our father, freed from our guilt and made to experience every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. How could we not crave that the father would be glorified? How could we not do that? How could we withhold that? Acceptable worship only comes from an essential relationship in which it is purely by faith and from a pure heart. The children of God who've been redeemed. Second, acceptable worship only comes through an an essential knowledge of God. Acceptable worship has to be according to truth. Jesus makes uh, the most profound declaration about the Father in verse 24. He says, He is spirit. That might be easy to read over, but what does that mean? He is spirit. It means he's creator. He is spirit. You can't compare him to anything in his creation. You can't confine him by anything within the creation. God is not contained in a temple in Jerusalem. He's not contained on Mount Gerizim. You can't contain him. God is spirit, not physical. He's eternal. 
He's all-knowing. He's all-present. He's all-powerful. God is infinitely greater than his entire creation, and his entire creation can't contain him. He must be worshipped by those who are truly redeemed, but he must also be worshipped according to what is true about him. And that's why we spend so much time studying the scriptures. We want to gain a more glorious understanding of who God is through his word and have that affect us the way that we worship him. And that's, you know, he makes himself known to us through his word and we want to worship him according to that truth those who walk in faith, those who are his children. He makes himself known to us. And we must worship according to truth. Uh, uh, Acceptable worship of the Father is offered in spirit and in truth. And And his children desire that truth. It's a natural behavior of those who are his children. What is worship and how is it done? We started with this. Let's go full circle. The word for worship in the scriptures literally means to bow down, to prostrate oneself, or to kiss toward. It comes from this imagery of kissing the hand of the king, of bowing down before him, prostrating yourself, throwing yourself face down on the ground. Why? Because you're making yourself as low as you can possibly go and elevating him as high as you possibly can. You're acknowledging the reality of your place and his place. It's an outward expression of an inner attitude of humility and worship before the one that you feel the intense unworthiness to even acknowledge. So in a practical sense, how do we do this? How is worship accomplished? How do we do it? Is is music worship? Absolutely, it can be. Certainly music is worship. We all know Psalm 95, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Scripture tells us all over the place to sing. It's a great creation of God. Music is a gift. It's a beautiful way of expressing our voices together and expressing a heart of worship, exalting the greatness of God and giving thanks to him. In Ephesians 5, we're told that it is the will of God that we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Music is a great way to worship, but is this the only way that we worship? Is this it? Is this the totality of worship? Listen to this prayer of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. He prays this for the saints. He says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You're redeemed to bring glory to God. We worship God, and when we grow in love, 
Love that is based in knowledge and discernment from the truth. Where does that come from? God's word. We worship God through a growing knowledge of his word. We worship when we uh, approve what is excellent according to that truth. We worship God as, as we're being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. We worship when we grow in faith and understanding and Christ-likeness. In, in fact, everything should be an act of worship. For a child of God, absolutely everything we do should be an act of worship, even the mundane things of life, things that you wouldn't even think about. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. What's more mundane than what we eat and drink? Have you guys, you spouses, ever had this conversation? What do you want to eat? Well, I don't know. What do you want to eat? Well, I don't care. Whatever you want to eat. I don't know. What would you like, dear? Mundane. Every aspect of life, though, should be approached with faith and worship for the glory of God down to the smallest detail of our life. We call this a worship service, and it is. That should be the focus of what we're doing. Our music, our reading from the scriptures, our prayer, our fellowship with each other, all the various things that we do within the context of our service is done in an act of worship towards our creator and our redeemer. That's where it should be focused. But the worship service is not the beginning and the end either. The worship service, if anything, should bolster our capacity to worship the rest of the time, the rest of the week. Listen to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you. This is a transition in Romans. He's going from the discussion of the gospel, which just took place in the first 11 chapters. He says, now I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing of your mind, but that, by, uh, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And it goes on. You know what follows after this? Paul exhorts the body to love each other with complete humility of mind, with sober judgment of self. To live for the physical and spiritual benefit of each other. You can read what follows for yourself, but this is exactly what Josh has been preaching about. Our worship expresses itself through our loving fellowship and our service towards one another continually acting like our Father in the way that we treat each other, wanting to see each other excel in our capacity to worship God and delight in Him. One last passage from the end of Hebrews. It says, Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledges His name. Do not neglect to do good, and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing 
to God. It gives this imagery of the sacrifices of the Old Testament where God was pleased. It was a type of worship he was pleased with. It goes on, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Your spiritual leaders are trying to help you become better worshipers. They're trying to help you become a better worshiper because that's the most blessed thing that could happen for you. That is, that is your greatest benefit is to enjoy God and to be a true worshiper. And it brings glory to the Father. It's right. Worship doesn't begin and end with music. In fact, worship doesn't begin and end with a worship service. And we've been redeemed by the amazing and infinite grace of God. We've been made clean, given everlasting life, eternal life, and fellowship with God. And we have been made into true worshipers. And worship, guys, should be part of everything that we do because God has sought us out and redeemed us to be his true worshipers. And I want to conclude just by reading out of Revelation 5 for you. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and on earth and under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the living, four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy! Are you to take the scroll and to open its seals? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of the angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and all the elders fell down and worshiped. Father, we thank you 
for the Lamb of God who took away our sin, who gave us a new heart. I pray, Father, that you would forgive me for the times where I fail to worship, where there's areas of my life that do not do that. I pray, Father, that you would create in us a capacity to worship you in a way that is worthy of your name, worthy of who you are, and worthy of what you have done for us as your children. And I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and honored among us as we grow in our capacity to worship. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.